I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to the Barbican Screen Talks Archive podcast. Every episode, we reach back into the Barbican's extensive collection of live Q&A recordings to bring you an illuminating conversation about film. This time, though, we're perfectly poised in first position, at the intersection between cinema and another art form. That's because we're revisiting the 2019 feature Cunningham, a part biopic, part experimental dance film, all about the legendary American choreographer, Merce Cunningham. Leading the discussion is former New York Times dance critic and Cunningham biographer, Alastair McCauley. He speaks primarily with the film's director, Moscow-born dance specialist, Alec Ovgan. But you'll also be hearing from two of Cunningham's collaborators, dancer and choreographer, Dame Siobhan Davies, also known as Sue, and composer and Radiohead drummer, Philip Selway. These four first offer up their different perspectives on both Cunningham the film and Cunningham the man. Then Kovgan addresses the particular challenges of making her well-received film. How is it possible to contain the uncontainable choreography within the frame of a film camera? How long can a single shot last when the dancers have no music to help them time their movement? Often the answer to these dilemmas seems to be another question. What would Merce Cunningham have done? Sometimes, though, Kovgan had no choice but to deviate from Cunningham's template, most notably in her choice of locations and use of 3D viewing technology. She discusses here how she landed upon surprising new settings for some of Cunningham's most famous works. You'll also hear reference to such notable members of the Merce Cunningham Dance Company as Viola Farber, Valda Setterfield and Carolyn Brown. Thanks to Kovgan's extensive research, all are present in the form of archival footage used in the film. I'm Eleni Jones, and this is Barbican Screen Talks on Cunningham. Evening, I'm Alistair McCauley. At the far end is Ala Kovgan, our director, our star. Philip Selway next to her, and Sue Siobhan Davis here. Ella is the director, the originator, and I was fascinated by how many times your name occurs in different capacities and credits. This is a labour of love. I know something of how much work you've done over the years. Some of the rare films that you're seeing clips of there are ones that people thought long lost, and Ella was going through archives in Europe and simply found 
a rare film, for example, of Merce dancing his great solos, Changeling, made in 1957, filmed in 1958. Everybody thought it had been lost for 50 years. You found it in about 2014-15. Sue Davis is here because she was, when she was falling in love with dance, she saw Merce Cunningham and company, I think, 1969, 1970? <laughs> 1970, Richard Alston says. They fell in love with Merce Cunningham's work at the same time. And moving forward, 49 years... Sue was one of the dancers who performed at the Barbican in Night of a Hundred Solos by Merce Cunningham on April 16th last year for Cunningham's centenary. Philip was with Radiohead, which collaborated with Merce Cunningham in Split Sides, Merce Cunningham work 2003, and has now done music for the Rombert Cunningham event. Can we begin, therefore, chronologically at the end? And Philip, what is it like looking at Merce from your much more recent perspective? Well, the piece that you mentioned, Split Sides, that was a piece that was written and performed for his 80th birthday. So it was a piece that we did with another band called Seeger Ross, and it was at uh, BAM in Brooklyn. And I think it's fair to say he had a fairly established career by that point already. <laughs> and you come into those projects and you're very aware of, well, from a musician's point of view, that kind of heritage that's there that incredible creativity and bravery in the composition there. And then you have to kind of try and block that out, or else that would just be, you'd just be a rabbit in headlights with that. I think for me, being at this stage and then having kind of posthumously collaborated with Merce Cunningham, I think it's incredible that actually to have left that kind of framework, that kind of environment where, I mean, I think of myself as being generally quite a timid person, but actually having that opportunity creatively to really stretch yourself, to really very much go out of your comfort zone, to abstract what you're doing, and kind of actually trying to, in a very supportive environment tap into the spikier side of yourself and it's just such an incredible legacy to actually draw upon and to respond to as well well thank you sue your trajectory of watching Mercer's career is in a way the longest of us up here what's it like watching this taking you back before you began it's enormous um Thank you, Alla. Huge thank you, because it's truly here in a large scale. So there was a real enjoyment in seeing the figures large, because normally one sees them quite small on stage, unless, and I had the privilege of seeing them work in studios mm -hmm. and close up or in class. Mm -hmm. So the presence of having the film, the ambition of having the film, the enormity of it, gives Merce and his dancers a place they anyhow deserve, but it's an extra place for them to be in existence of. I couldn't help but be moved by all of the, what I call the scratch tapes, the documentary part, because those were dancers that I knew and was nervous of. Uh, <laughs> I was taught by Viola Faber and I can remember that class in my body to this day. And that's, that's something. And then to see her, and, and Valda, and I still am in touch with Valda. Carolyn was too scary. 
but <laughs> she has seen the movie now. <laughs> um, and then, to some extent, see Merce in his context of New York. Mm. And I don't think I've experienced that so much because on street level, New York is this mess and glory. And then suddenly you give us the perspective of this entire city and the, and the world which he traveled mm. and a sense of place, which sometimes I found shocking. Sometimes I found the sort of the furniture of the scenes. I would go, hold on, wait a moment. I have to readdress my sense of merciness. Mm. On the other hand, in terms of a cinematic uh, placement of it and a way of involving an audience that doesn't know the things that we know and that you place that in a sense of largesse and generosity and dynamics and then you see the present dancers at work so it's a sort of huge 360 degree experience for somebody like me. Um, Ala, for those who don't know Mercer's work as well as us four, am I right in saying that where possible you've always used the original costumes and quite often you've used the original music, sometimes using other sound around it, but where you've been freest, and God knows you've done, I'm working on a Cunningham biography and I know you've found material I never knew, so I take my hat off again and again and again, but where you are freest is often in location and you take these dances and put them where Mercer never dreamt maybe of putting them. Um, the one that knocks me out the most is Winter Brunch, which you put out in the open air and we don't know where we are. You're on the dam at, at the beginning, but then we realize we're by a train line going to New York from Brooklyn. Tell us where you got these ideas from and what encouraged you to take these liberties. Well, I mean, the idea came from cinema. In general, I always say I never want to make a film about Merskayim because he's a kind of choreographer who thinks in space and has 16 people going different directions and you cannot make a single shot. No chance. But when I saw Wim Wenders' film, actually, Pina, and Wim Wenders also has seen the movie now, which is interesting, you know, I felt that 3D has some potential with dance that no other medium had because you could actually experience the distance between people you could get very close to people so that's where the impetus came it came from 3d actually and trying and then i saw it bam at the last performances and i felt okay maybe mercy 3d can be a really good fit because i feel like the best 3d film will be done that have no cuts at all and that's so beautiful for the dancers they can actually dance and the idea was really not to capture dance you know mercy's dances but really make cinema translate his ideas into cinema with capital C. And so once you start thinking about dance in cinema terms, you know, cinema does not think in stages, theatrical stages, it thinks in places and spaces. And I thought that works with Mars too, because he tried to escape stage, you know, for a very long time. He always said he choreographed so that you could see that his dance from all different perspectives. It doesn't have to be on the proscenium. And as soon as he got the chance, he went out and made 700 events all around the world that mostly some of them were performed on stage later on, but at the beginning it was all these locations. So I felt there's freedom in that. And so the way we worked, once we picked 14 dancers out of 80 that he made between 42 and 72, the process took about seven and a half months to do that with Robert Swinston, who worked with Mercer for 32 years, and Jennifer Gargans, who was there for 12. We basically sort of identify the questions and concepts behind each dance that Merce explored. And 
then we would think about them in cinema terms. So if it's Winter Branch, as you mentioned, it's dance based in the action of falling, how would cinema think about falling? And here you go, vertigo, you know, heights. Cinema is all about making illusions. You don't actually have to fall to experience the danger of falling. Um, so you start thinking that way, and, so, and that's how the locations start emerging. So that's how the Winter Branch location, the rooftop, it's actually not a rooftop, it's actually in Germany and not New York, but you're talking about illusions, right? So, so you start creating cinema, and that's how... And you go for it. You have to kind of make a decision, and you have to go for it. Of course, I looked at probably 28 rooftops and places, and that's a massive process because you are setting something up. You take responsibility for creating something that wasn't there. But at the same time, you know, I've tried to look at all kinds of versions of Winter Branch, and every one that was staged is incredibly dark on video. You cannot catch anything because it's black on black. People are wearing black costumes it's absolutely like darkness. It's um, there's some lights, but it's it's kind of spooky and crazy. And one thing, well, is followed. I try not to dramatize anything. I just try to marry Mercer's formal ideas with formal cinema ideas. So it's just about falling. It's not about drama about falling, you know. So that's how we went about it. If it's rune, it's about layering. You know, he first time he worked with layers of people and foreground, middle ground, background. So I was thinking, okay, well, maybe we can take woods because actually there's a lot of layers and we can make dances as another layer in the woods. Maybe we could have taken some plant, I don't know, with metal rods. I don't know that's also layers, but it didn't feel right, <laughs> I guess. So that's how we went. We basically tried to make 14 different movies and every single one was coming from a kind of a formal idea he explored, physical idea or concept. Philip, again, what is it like looking at the oldest material for you here? So way before your time. Yeah, it still feels very vital looking back at it. It doesn't actually have the sense of looking back at it. It still feels very inspiring at this point as well. Um, for the Rombert Cunningham event, I mean, they were drawing on their repertoire. So I'm not sure, I have to ask Jeannie Steele, who's here, <laughs> what would the earliest piece have been in that event. But, you know, that event covered quite a, a period in his choreography. But... Yeah, I, I still find it very challenging looking at those earlier pieces. When you're composing for a mass event today and you know that you're covering material that goes from, it may be in its back, as far back as 1953, up to something made this century, does that affect your musical choice? No. <laughs> I just go um, I think, you know, when we were, because the brief for the Rombert event was to write an hour's worth of music that would work over two spaces and the kind of the only criteria within that were not to have anything with too strong a pulse or a groove which mm -hmm. as a drummer is can be a bit of anathema to me at, at points but within that though I think we kind of I, I worked with two other musicians collaborated with two other musicians Quinta and Ard Milhan and I, I think we tried to tap into those kind of chance strategies in writing we we had three weeks to write it we didn't have any material when we came in to write it and it was just for each piece but we did it was almost a case of you know we set ourselves a task and have these parameters in there and trying to allow for the happy accidents in that process and so I think that's what drove the kind of compositional side of it 
and actually it was completely separate to the dance mm. until the dress rehearsal. You know, Jeannie hadn't heard any of <laughs> the, the score, nor did anybody at Rumba. And so, I mean, that was quite a petrifying experience doing that, that dress rehearsal. Sure. But that's where it all came together. And that's where you have these distinct, very distinct elements, you know, with the Cunningham choreography, the stage design and costumes from Gerhard Richter and, and then the music that we put together. They all work as very separate entities and you bring them together and they have this new dialogue, which actually you couldn't have planned for. I'm glad you were petrified because generations of Cunningham dancers were petrified that way, <laughs> not knowing what it was going to sound like as they did it. <laughs> so you, the film ends quite strongly on the change of generation that up to about 72, the dancers had been able to go out for coffee with mess and so forth. Now there was a distant in generation. Did you, do you feel that from that you knew Viola Faber, you worked with Carolyn and observed her closely, you saw Merce dancing a lot. You've seen also all these younger dancers who are in this film. How big is the generational change for you? And of course, you are now a Cunningham dancer in 2019. <laughs> I can wear the badge. Um, it's quite hard. There's a, maybe there is this strange tradition that choreographers get older and dancers partly because of their bodies and because of their the capacity to tour so much rem, remain within a certain generation and the choreographer inevitably normally gets older so I think every choreographer can have this moment in which the original company falls away and new dancers come in I just got the impression from him all the time that he loves dancing and he loves dancers yep. so he needs in a selfish as well as a generous way, he needs that food and he needs that... I'm going to use the word material for a little bit, although I think he was always aware of the people doing the work. Mm -hmm. I think when I worked on the for the Night of 100 solos, we were taught by dancers who'd been in the company and they consistently said, don't worry about perfection, do the movement... If you are not so happy with it, just move to the next, just move to the next, and you will constantly be in a state of action and doing. And I hear him say that in the film, and I feel... And Viola says it beautifully yes, too. Yes, she does. So there's generations of dancers, I don't know how many dancers he's worked with, have learnt this thing about being in the moment, making the attempt, do not worry about failure, be there, be there, be there. And it doesn't matter which generation does it. I think they've all, you'll see the line of them doing that right across from then till now. And that's powerful. Yeah. Ella, tell us more about these amazing locations that you chose. <laughs> and it's so startling to me, say, who knows Sweet for Five, to see it set in a park and then suddenly see a pool beneath it. Yeah, so it's interesting. We shot this movie in 18 days. It took seven years. Um, uh, because we really want to shoot this in New York City. I mean, there was this big 
kind of attempt to try to make the film in New York. And when we realized we couldn't, we did what Merce would do. We would say yes to anything. <laughs> you know, that means as soon as we could make it, so we made the movie European. Thank you, Dog Wolf. You are amazing <laughs> to come on board. But uh, yeah, a lot of money came from Germany, and so we had to move to Germany and start over from... We traveled from Hamburg to Stuttgart. If you know geography, it's really from north to down south. And we were on our own bus of um, six weeks. Uh, so 15 days were shot in Germany, two days in France, only summer space, this dance. And then one day in New York City. And we basically kind of went on a scavenger hunt. Again, very much driven by Mercer's ideas about every single place. So the first shot is Elbe Tunnel under Elbe in Hamburg and so on. So... Uh, the way we worked is that once we actually chose the location, specifically what you're referring to Suite for Five, we actually split it. We have Suite for Two and then Suite for Five. And primarily because we really wanted to show sort of the evolution of, you know, if you actually follow the film, you, we start with solos only and then we have a duet for Suite for Two and then Suite for Five. I mean, it's just Septet and Suite for Five. So we, the dances are pretty much in chronological order. Events are a little bit not, but um, most of them, there's post-science, first concert, beginning of the company, world tour, everybody left. So that's kind of the structure. But the main thing about this suite for two, which is at the pond, this dance is about sort of infinity. And I think you actually yourself mentioned that you don't put them in that box. You know, you have to. It's about infinity, right? But the interesting part where I really was looking for a space that would communicate that idea and when I saw this pond it's actually a very narrow pond but we have wide angle lens there so you can have an illusion of a white one so sometimes you have to look at those locations not what you see physically what what they can do for cinema again and the infinity was that pond for me and there's a really great story about this particular situation because Robert was there and we had a heated discussion about what's better to come to start from the dances and go to the pond or to start from the pond and go to the dances. Because actually from a cinema point of view, it's much better to reveal the space. But from the dance point of view, it's much better to see the dances at the end. So that's what you arrive to, the body, you know. And so Robert said, you know what? I just was thinking, he just got very quiet and he said, if Merce had been alive, he would have done both and used both. So that's how we did it. Sometimes things like that happen. So we shot it both ways and we used it both ways. It's exactly the same movement. So it was an amazing kind of journey. But once we choose the location, we'll have to model it in the architecture program, literally. And then we put that model in the storyboarding software. And we did six weeks of rehearsal in 2013 with Kaim dancers. So we had a lot of footage that with my director of photography, just sort of being there for six weeks with them, kind of at the end of each day for a few hours and looking for different shots and how do you look at the movement, discussing with Robert and Jennifer all the time. So we had all that footage, but we shot the movie only in 2018. So it's like five years later which we always were worried that we wouldn't have any dancers to shoot with. They all moved on. You know, the company closed December 31st, 2011. They had their life. Some of them are not dancing. But the troopers they are, once they learned that we're going to do this, they all went back to class, and they were in class for five months, getting back into that kind of work, which was incredibly moving to me. 
But anyway, so basically we would then take those locations into the storyboarding software and then we would create virtual dances in the software and would have all the screens and steady cameras, everything, and we would basically choreograph the camera inside the program and then print out those storyboards. So on the day of the shoot, pretty much everything was known. You know, everybody was there and it was like a joke was like a military regime because the clock was ticking and ticking and ticking and ticking and it just felt I mean that's also interesting how like the dance world and film world all of a sudden start crossing at that moment because you know the responsibility that the film people start feeling is high because you know film people you know just you light everybody waits you know then finally we shoot for five minutes and everybody waits again you know we have to change things but here nothing was it was like a machine I mean everybody was sort of working together there was this kind of spirit that every shot was like a performance you know so that every shot was dead silence and we worked with some of the Pina people who worked on Pina Bash film and I mean, they constantly complain that there's no music. And I couldn't say, why, why is there music? I said, well, because Pina was shot to music. You know, so every time they learned all the audio cues and they would follow them. Ah, oh, Stravinsky goes up, the camera goes up, you know, like, you know. But here they had to actually learn the movement and their attention spans about 45 seconds. <laughs> After that, and no, they're great people. I mean, I love my crew. I mean, look, I mean, I'm very, very moved by them. But, but it's interesting because people don't know how to look at dance, and they cannot learn it. I mean, you know, there's normal people I'm talking about, and they had this incredible difficulty. No matter what, can be whispering. I mean, they know what they have to do, but they just forgot, you know, all the time. So, in the test, we learned that with, with short summer space. Actually, that was our test. So we had to kind of trick them. Uh, with different techniques to actually have longer shots, like Winterbrush, three minutes shot, you know, for instance. But you had to count, we had to use all kinds of ways to keep the shots going. So that was a kind of hardest thing to align the choreography of the camera and choreography of the dance. That three minute shot that you do of Winter Branch. I mean, the most breathtaking moment to me, I, I think because we've really been watching quite a lot, we're getting deep into Winter Branch, and suddenly Silas Reiner looms into view half in shadow, and then we realize he is carrying a horizontal body right across his head. That, to me, is the most breathtaking moment Thank in the you. film. I'm going to ask if there's a question from the floor, and I'm going to ask you two if you want to ask Alan a question. I simply got one more for Alan, which is simply, because you end in 1972, one of the aspects of Merce you don't investigate is Merce the filmmaker. I presume, though, you spent quite some time looking at the way he used the camera, because I think I spot quite a lot of his techniques. You know, I try not to. <laughs> <laughs> I was coming from cinema. I actually think never, Merce never engaged with cinema. You know, he was interested in how to look at dance through the lens of the camera. But I never think he was thinking, okay, I'm going to just make a film for big screen. I think he wanted to. I mean, some people told me that he would have loved to do that, but he never quite... So he, a lot of his work is he's looking at the movement. You know, that's the focus, you know. And I think one of the reasons also I wanted to end in 72 because I feel like there's so much work he created after 72 himself, and there's this whole you know, body of work that he made. But I, I didn't... I really tried to just go from his ideas, like his ideas of the dances, rather than how he was looking at them himself. So that was, you know, just in terms of 
his work. I mean, I've seen Charlie's work, of course. I mean, I brought him to Russia and you know all kinds of things. But you know, and I always at the time I never imagined I'm going to do this. So it's an interesting kind of journey. When Alice says Charlie, that's Charlie Atlas, who worked with Merce on a series of amazing films between mid seventies and eighty three. Should we take one from the floor? Yes. Front front row. Well, you can start asking and then the rest. Okay, sure. So I was really impressed with the locations, especially the one, the one of the last ones, if not the last one, which was with um, Andy World's set design. And, uh, you know, as a filmmaker myself, I was just looking at that huge set and seeing all these uh, dancers almost like in a known space that was like faded in black. And I was just wondering all the pre-lighting. I was trying to second guess basically the pre-lighting that was going on and how to make basically a space look like everything but a space. Yeah, I just thought, what kind of space was that? How did you light it? Um, yeah. Right, so it's a great one because, you know, again, what was most interested here and how the actual, those pillars change the space. You know, again, coming from Mercer's ideas all the time and... We actually try to put this dance in all kinds of locations because it felt like, you know, yeah, maybe we can put it under Brooklyn Bridge or whatever. You know, like there's maybe some space that can be changed. But then he was really interested just in those pillows. So if you're his interest in those pillows, so the only way we can do, we can multiply them by putting the glass floor down, reflection, right? So that's the only thing we did. It's a real soundstage. It's like a normal film studio in Cologne. All we did was just put the floor, and I must say it was a nightmare to choreograph those pillows, as you can imagine. And there was a whole other layer of uh, choreography in terms of people with fans fanning it from different directions and kind of footballing them. And we're like, no, no, this is a very nice thing. So you got to be a little gentle. And it took us to, we had to study the behavior of the pillows. But the dancers, I mean, they loved that. <laughs> you know, they loved those pillows. And usually it was many more than they usually get used to on stage. Because on stage, they just like wander into the audience and, you know, they're kind of, they also control them. But it's uh, here we could really control them much better. But uh, yeah, there's free lights and it's kind of standard stuff. Uh, but the light plot was again made in the software really and we knew exactly what's going to happen so it was very efficiently done but the pillars yeah that dance was shot for two days which is a big luxury for us I mean I, I wish I wish we had more days I really felt the difference when we had two days versus one day per dance because you know dancers had to kind of get into it they needed more time just to be in the space itself and I feel like the, the rainforest is really just a good one because they had two days to be with the pillars yeah. thank you I'll quickly remark that I've seen this film twice in New York, that Barbican has much better 3D glasses than Lincoln Center does. <laughs> but also, if you ever see the 2D version, which I also once did at Lincoln Center, that's just great too. Yeah. Ala, my colleagues, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Barbican Screen Talk on Alla Cobkin's Cunningham. Fans of dance cinema will also find lots to fascinate and enjoy in our episode on the Georgian film and Then We Danced from earlier in this series. If you liked what you heard and would like to hear more, please support us by rating and subscribing to this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Acast or your usual podcast providers or visit barbican.org.uk. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this episode or any other, 
you can find us on social media at Barbican Centre. Barbican Screen Talks Archive is presented by me, Ellen E. Jones, and produced by Jane Long for Loftus Media. We'll be back next time with author Naomi Alderman discussing Sebastian Lelio's powerful 2018 adaptation of her debut novel, Disobedience. Until then, be well and goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.